you tonight for this very sweet time of being able to offer you our praise and our worship and our thanksgiving. We want to thank you tonight for the miracle of our spiritual birth, Lord, what was humanly impossible for us to accomplish in ourselves, however much the desire might be, at enormous expense to yourself. You paid the price through your son to make this life possible. And then, Lord, in a tremendous miracle, worked in our lives and worked and worked until our eyes were opened up to our need and surrendering to you. We just say thank you tonight for our testimony. Thank you for our salvation, Lord. Thank you not only for what it means in terms of what it has delivered us out of, but into the glory of what it has delivered us into, even this side of heaven, Lord. We thank you for the Christian life that is ours. And we pray that you'd fill us with your spirit right now, the same spirit that we have sung about this evening, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave. And we ask that you would give us a supernatural ability to reverence you and to worship you, to honor you, and to obey you, Lord, as we learn your word tonight, as we head through it line upon line, precept upon precept, embracing it into our spirit, Lord, and making it a part of our life and relationship with you. We pray for that work of your spirit tonight in each one of us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Matthew chapter 18 this evening, going through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation on Sunday night, and we didn't quite, if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and if you flag them and get their attention, they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked for our passage tonight, and then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this evening. We didn't quite get through uh, chapter 18 uh, last week. And uh, we head into a very, very significant part of the chapter uh, where Peter uh, begins in verse 21. Peter then said, uh, came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? I think what kind of provokes this question in Peter is that uh, verse 15 of earlier in the chapter, and there's that whole sequence, three-part sequence that uh, Jesus gives us for dealing with uh, when somebody, uh, somebody in the body of Christ sins against us and how to address that so we don't slip into a life of bitterness and anger and uh, resentment, but we address it with the other person with the hopes that it will be solved and rectified and the relationship will be restored. Uh, that process is never to be initiated by me or by you or any Christian with the idea of I'm going to go them and tell them what they did to me uh, so that just so I can, you know, uh, you know, blow some steam off in this situation and let them have it. The idea is always seeking for restoration. So you go to the brother who has sinned against you or sister and then you tell them their fault, and then they go, wow, you are so right. I, can't be, I am so sorry. Would you forgive me? And then what happens in that moment? I mean, sometimes we look at that scenario, and it looks like it's, we're going to be the ones doing all of the giving, and they're going to be the ones you know, doing all of the taking in terms of us in that circumstance. We've got the high seat and all. Uh, everything that will be demanded in the situation will be demanded of them and not of us. But as soon as they confess their sin and they ask for our forgiveness, then suddenly it dawns on us, I've got to forgive them. I've got to forgive. I started this process and it's brought me here, and am I ready to forgive? Now, Peter, I think, is still mulling this over. And in his mind, he feels like there has to be like an upper limit for this kind of thing. I mean, there can only be so many times that a person can sin against us, and we can be expected to forgive them, and then after that, we can just write them off. 
And so, this is what Jesus says to Jesus. Peter says to Jesus, how often shall my brother sin against me? This is what he's talking about, and I forgive him up to seven times. Peter, of course, is uh, being very magnanimous in this, very generous in saying up to seven times. The rabbinical teaching among the Jews in Jesus' day was that you could forgive somebody if they sinned against you. You forgave them three times, and then you didn't have to forgive them anymore. So they had their own version of the three strikes you're out in the ancient world. But they recognized this is too, we can't, you know, we've, we've got to put a limit on this. And that's what they did. So Peter comes in, he doubles it, and he adds one. And, uh, and he's going way beyond the kind of spiritual standard among the Jews at the time. I don't know whether he's expecting like some kind of a, a badge or something for this or, or not, but this is what he, he, he poses to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, don't pull out your iPhone and uh, the calculator. Let's see, seven times, 70, and you hit, it's a zero, and then the four, and the 49, and then you got this, 490 times. So when Jesus says, no, not up to seven times, but to forgive a person, 490 times. And the idea isn't that when somebody sins against us and it's 488, <laughs> we're getting close and then I can clobber them 489, 499, get out of my hair! I don't want to see you again. I don't have to forgive you. Jesus isn't being literal here, and all the Hebrew audience would have uh, recognized that what he was uh, speaking here was uh, poetic language, you know, for, uh, uh, for, you know, losing count. When somebody sins against you, one person, one person, uh, 490 times, you are either going to kill them with your own bare hands or you're going to develop a spirit of forgiveness in your life. And that's what he's talking about. It's not about a number. It's about an, and developing a spirit of forgiveness in our life as Christians to where we no longer keep count when a person sins against us. And so in terms of their repentance, they're asking for our forgiveness and then our obligation uh, to uh, forgive them. So when Peter comes in and says seven times, well, it seems like a lot. It seems like a lot for our culture, but it's not enough for the body of Christ. What marriage would survive if you only had to forgive seven times, and then that's it? Would it survive the honeymoon? <laughs> well, no marriage is going to survive. What parent is ever going to raise children? And if the upper limit is a forgiveness of seven. What children are going to put up with parents if it's just an upper limit of seven? What church is going to hold together in our contact with one another, relationship with one another, if seven is the upper limit in terms of forgiveness? And so here is uh, Jesus blowing that even high number that Peter lays out here kind of out of the water, and he tells him, no, 490 times, again, a figurative way of saying that we're to forgive without number, without, uh, without uh, limit at all. Now, Jesus does something that's interesting here because he doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 23, and he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, he gives now Peter a parable. And what Jesus seems to anticipate is the question that Peter is going to have that the disciples are going to have, and that you and I are going to have. All right. The rabbis are teaching three times. Peter proposed seven. Seemed pretty decent of me. You're telling us 490 as a, as a figurative speech for not keeping count. We are to forgive when, in, in, without any number on that. And Jesus anticipates the great question that will come to the mind of all of us as we think closely about what's being said, and the great question is, how in the world can a person do that? How in the world does a person develop that kind of a lifestyle of forgiveness? And that's what Jesus communicates now in this parable.
He said, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king, and the king represents uh, God within the parable. But here is this king, and he wanted to settle accounts uh, with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one servant was brought before him who owed him 10,000 talents. That'd be the equivalent of like 60 to 90 million dollars. It's a lot of money, isn't it? It's a lot of money even if you won the lottery. So this guy owes the king 60 to 90 million dollars, but he was not able to pay. I guess not. How many, life, how many lifetimes would it take you to repay 60 to 90 million dollars in debt? But he was not able to pay his ma- when he was not, as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold into a debtor's prison with his wife and children, everything that they had, and then whatever could be gained from, by that would be put against the 60 to 90 million. In other words, the king demands justice. There's nothing unrighteous about what he's doing here. This was the way that things were handled uh, in the ancient world. Well, the servant, therefore, he fell down before him. Now, imagine you as a, uh, and your wife, your family, everyone's about to be thrown in a debtor's prison. Everything that you own is about to be sold to auction and so forth, and you owe this gigantic amount. There's no way that you're going to ever work that off in your life. So the servant fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all, right? right. I mean, there's no way he's going to pay that off. But the emotion of the scene is there. And then notice in verse 27, then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and he forgave him the debt. And he did so not on the basis of anything that the Uh, that the servant brought to this, this king does that solely on the basis of his own character, his own compassion. He completely forgives the debt. Now, imagine that. Now, most of us aren't in debt for 60 to 90 million dollars. If for no other reason, then the banks won't let us do that today. And, but imagine be having that kind of a debt released from off of you, the emotion that you would feel. So, uh, for our purposes here tonight, it would be like somebody comes and hands you a check for 60 to 90 million dollars. What kind of emotion would you have? Wow! I mean, so this is incredible, and it's a picture of uh, the fact that God has forgiven uh, a, a debt in terms of our sin that we could never repay on our own. Could never, ever happen. Not in a hundred lifetimes could we pay off a debt like that. So the king forgives the servant, not on the basis of what anything that the servant has to offer. He has nothing to offer in the face of a debt that size. And in the same way, our king, the Lord, because of Calvary, he has forgiven our debt of sin, which is far weightier than 60 to 90 million dollars, and he has taken that off of us at enormous expense to himself. He absorbs the entire debt here in the parable. And God the Father absorbed the entire debt that my sin uh, uh, deserved and what I owed spiritually by absorbing that cost in the sacrifice of his Son. I mean, boy, what a, how wonderful it is to be saved and to be freed from our sin and the debt of our sin and the debt that we owed because of our sin, the judgment that we deserved, and yet all of it has been lifted off of us, not because of who and what we are, because we came to Him pleading for mercy, and then it was His heart, though. He was the one moved with compassion released him, verse 27, and forgave him the debt. Wow, that is really amazing. Well, the servant goes out from that scene, and uh, as he uh, leaves that uh, scene of, of incredible forgiveness, the feeling that he would have experienced, wow, you know, I'll never forget this. But he servant went out and he found, it wasn't that he ran into him at Rayleigh's, or ran into him at church or downtown Modesto, he goes and finds this guy, one of his fellow servants, 
who owed him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii, denarii was a day's wages for a blue-collar worker. So let's say it's somewhere between, uh, let's say it's about $10,000 that the debt is. Now, it's, it's important not to look at that $10,000 and say, it's nothing. No, no, no. It's a pretty good sum of money. It was going to require some forgiveness of this guy to forgive his fellow servant of this $10,000. So it's not just some little nothing. It, nothing in comparison to what the 60 to 90 million, but still a significant debt that was owed. And so he finds him, the guy owes him 100 denarii, and then he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. Ooh, that's ugly. That's an ugly scene to see. This guy that's been forgiven so much finds a fellow servant who owes him uh, incomparably a smaller debt, and then he hunts him down, grabs him by the throat, uh, humiliates him here, and demands payment. Oh, it's very, very ugly, a person to be forgiven that much, and then to treat a fellow sinner Uh, in this way. And so his fellow servant fell down at his feet, begged him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. The very thing that uh, the other servant had said to the king. And he would not. It wasn't that he couldn't. He would not. And he went and he threw him into the prison, then he should pay the debt. Well, you can do that, but people are always watching what we do, always watching what we do. And so when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved. In fact, they were so grieved they couldn't live with themselves unless they went and told the king what it was that had happened here. And so they told the master all that had been done. And when his master, after he had called him before him, he said to him, you wicked servant. Now that's interesting. He never called the servant wicked on the basis of the 60 to $90 million debt. Never called him wicked for that. But he calls him wicked for having been forgiven such a debt and then failing to forgive another person of their sin against him, that debt. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not, and this is a key word also, is you, we cannot be like the God of the Bible without being a forgiving people. It just, it just can't. How can I be like Christ and not be a forgiving person? And so I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also, in light of what I've done for you, had compassion on your fellow servant? And then those two key words, just as I had pity on you. That word, that phrase, just as, <clears throat> reminds me of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ uh, forgave you. And so here's this call here. I've forgiven you so much, and, and shouldn't you have forgiven him just as I had forgiven you? And his master was angry, delivered him to the tortures that he should pay all that was due to him. And so my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you... Now he's speaking to the disciples now. So we just... 35 is not the parable. <laughs> 35 is the application, and it's heavy. And so my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. When you see in the Lord's Prayer other places where Jesus teaches on forgiveness, I mean, it seems like the one thing that Jesus and the Father are absolutely intolerant of. They don't want there to be any kind of a foothold of it among uh, their people, among our lives, is this unforgiveness. And the reason is, is again, because it's impossible to represent 
a forgiving God like the God that we serve and to be an unforgiving person. It is to misrepresent God at his core. It is to misrepresent his nature. We are the body of Christ, after all, as Christians. And so this strong warning and that this forgiveness needs to happen from his heart. And so it needs to be internalized. It needs to be real. It needs to be all the way inside of me. It's easy to be cordial with somebody that I haven't forgiven, even somebody that I hate. And that yet inside, I can put on an appearance on the outside, but boy, I hate your guts and I, I, we only ran into each other at O'Brien's here, but if I had my way, I'd never see it for the rest of my life. That's not the kind of forgiveness that he's talking about, but a, a real forgiveness that comes from our hearts. It is internalized and it is real. So when this parable is given... The question that Jesus is answering is to forgive somebody 490 times if they come to us and they ask for the forgiveness and confess their wrong and would you forgive me? Yes, of course, 490 times and all. The question is how do we do that? And how we do that is that God has provided us with a motivation for forgiveness that is limitless. And the motivation for our forgiveness of every other person in this world is the forgiveness that God extends to us every single day as Christians. I, no one in this world will ever sin against me more than I sin against God on a daily basis, not even intentionally trying to do that. And so when we look and God calls on us to forgive another person, we realize, how in the world can I do it? I can do it by remembering how much God has forgiven me and how much he continually forgives me. And then to do it is an act of worship to him. Forgiveness does not mean I trust the other person. Forgiveness and trust are two entirely different issues. Forgiveness is something that is unearned from our lives and bestowing it to another person. Trust is something that must be earned and re-earned uh, when trust is violated. So it doesn't mean we trust the person uh, immediately and all, but when a person sins against me, I am to forgive them. I forgive them as an act of worship to God. God, they don't deserve my forgiveness in this situation any more than I deserve your forgiveness on a daily basis. But you call me to forgive, and I want to represent you. And so I choose as, a, as an act of my will, as an act of worship to you, to forgive them. I take this situation, I put it in your hands, and then I trust you to work it together for good, and then we're able to move on with our lives. Jesus said, the Bible says, that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Whatever needs to be taken care of in the situation, it's to be trusted to God where vengeance or discipline or some hard thing needs to be done within the situation, and you walk away and say, man, it looks like they're getting away with murder here, you know. Oh, no. Don't you think that where that is required in a situation to teach somebody a lesson, that God is far more able in terms of power and wisdom and love to meet that out than you and I will ever be able to do it. To forgive is not to do nothing. It is to entrust the situation to God, to claim the promise as it relates to us that he will work this together for good, and, and then to know that he will. Sometimes, here we are, all forgiven sinners here in the room. Any exceptions? Or just do a quick clear. Okay. Um, so we all know that we've been forgiven. Sometimes when a person really sins against me, and I mean, I'm not just talking about bitterness for a day or a week or a month. I'm talking about the kind of thing that makes you so angry and is so unfair and produces such a sense of injustice and bitterness within you that you realize this can swallow me up. And one of the things that's important to do at a time like that is what we've just spoken about. But sometimes 
you know, we know that we're forgiven. We don't dwell on our past and the, and the significant sin that is in our past. But when God asks us to forgive others uh, just as he's forgiven us, it, it doesn't do any harm, I think. It hasn't ever done me any harm anyway to remember the three, four, five times in my life where I sinned and did something that I am deeply ashamed of in my life that I would never want anybody else to know other than God. And then to realize, God, you forgave me of those sins. And to think about the greatness of his forgiveness. Okay, yes, Lord, I will forgive in this situation as well. Again, that, that inexhaustible motivation for forgiveness being how much he has forgiven us in comparison to anything anyone else will require of us in terms of forgiveness as servant to servant, human being to human being. Another thing that helps me, and what I try to do in my walk with the Lord, I mean, I look at the Word of God and and I study it, and I'm try, trying to learn it and grow in it all of the time, and I try to, you know, figure things out. And sometimes forgiveness is a little, uh, I mean, I, I, I've, I've worked at that for 36 years, you know, in terms of not forgiving people, but, you know, what's, what's that look like, and, and, you know, practically, and where's those, where those lines get drawn and, and so forth. But, you know, the handful of times where I've just really been lost in something that's like I'm, uh, I'm losing my footing here over what has just happened here in this situation a little bit, kind of feel like I'm losing the battle related to bitterness, I, I, it helps me to think of Jesus, always to go back to Jesus. The one thing I want to do in life, I'm imperfect related to it. And I know when I say I, 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 we're talking about all of us in the room. But the one thing I want to do is I want to be like him in life. And then you go to the book of Hebrews, and the book, writer of the book of Hebrews says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, that's the physical side of it, despising the shame, that was the mental and the emotional side of the cross that Jesus endured at Calvary, endured the cross despising the shame and is, you know, henceforth in the heavenly places at the right hand of the Father and so forth. So I look at Jesus on the scene the, the greatest scene of injustice in human history is the cross of Calvary. And I expect to see Jesus spewing out venom and revenge and hatred toward Jew and Gentile in terms of what, what's going on there, to see bitterness, to see anger where it would be justified in him. And I see him on the cross and in that whole scene of the cross, none of it. I can't find one shred of unforgiveness or bitterness. And what do I hear? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the only way that we can be like Christ is to have that attitude and then as Jesus, as we look at the scene of the cross, there is the realization in any violation that people make of us in the course of our lifetimes to realize that if God was able to take the most unfair scene in human history, the cross of Calvary, and work that together for good for the salvation of you and me and mankind, then he is fully able to work together for good any sin that has been sinned against us, that we entrust to him to work together for good. And when, if anybody, any of us finds ourselves in that place tonight where you are about to go under, under the weight of bitterness and anger over sin in your life, you must just ask the Lord and say, God, would you, I see that the bitterness and the anger is a greater threat to me than even the original sin. 
to my fruitfulness, my walk, my relationship with you. Would you please give me the ability here in this situation to forgive and and take all of this out of my heart. I do it in response to how much you have forgiven me, and God will give us the ability to do that. It is a very, very powerful parable that Jesus uh, gives here, and it's something that we all run into in the course of our Christian lives, and wonderful that Peter kind of uh, did as he did. It was always fun being in in school. When I was in school, I'd sit in the classroom as far toward the back as I could, just like to scope everything out, you know what I mean? And then, uh, you know, I think especially of Mr. Dinsmore, who taught uh, geometry and algebra and so forth at Napa High, and he would turn around and look at the class and say, everybody understand? You know, oh, yeah, <laughs> yes, Mr. D-, you know, uh, no, Mr. Demisio, Mr. Dinsmore was the chemistry class. Oh, was I ever lost in chemistry. But we'd all look at like, and then somebody would raise their hand, and they'd raise a question that we were all dying to ask, but we were too cool to ask it, or at least we thought we were, and then here would come the answer, and was, all right, now I move from a D minus to a D plus on the test. Anybody else got any questions? I'd like to get into a C. Now, in chapter 19. Now, it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and he came to the region uh, of Judea and uh, beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there, and the Pharisees also came to him, testing him. So this is, they're going to ask him a question here. It's not an honest question. This is a test. And they're going to ask him a question about one of the most controversial subjects in religion, both then and Judaism and the Christianity even today, and they asked him this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? So the issue of divorce. Now, they're testing him with the idea, and they think they've got this foolproof kind of question. If Jesus says, yes, you can divorce, a man can divorce his wife for any reason, then there would be among Jesus, the multitude that is around Jesus, there would be people that would be in agreement with that. If Jesus said no, then there would other people that would be in agreement or disagreement with that. It's an attempt. The nation of Israel was uh, uh, religious uh, uh, Jews. They were divided on this issue. And so you had a famous rabbi at the time of of Jesus by the name of Shimei, and he taught in interpreting the law of Moses, and the law of Moses stated that a man could divorce his wife if he found uncleanness in her, but he could only divorce her with a writing of divorcement. And it was actually in terms of the time, it wasn't a thing to make divorce easy, it was a means of uh, m- protecting the person that was being divorced. It was a me- uh, I- I- insignificant for that time in human history. Well, Rabbi Shimei, all of the rabbis got together and said, well, if you can divorce according to the law of Moses uh, your wife for uncleanness, that raises the great question of what? What is uncleanness? And Rabbi Shimei was of the camp, and he was very conservative camp, and he taught that it could only be for sexual immorality, that when God spoke that to Moses in the law of Moses, it was referring to uncleanness being sexual uncleanness. There was another camp, that was the conservative camp, there was a liberal camp within Judaism at the time that was led by a rabbi by the name of Hillel, and he declared, he was much more liberal in his interpretation of it, and he declared that uncleanness could mean anything. It could just mean that she just didn't please her husband uh, anymore. He didn't like her personality after a while, didn't like her looks after a while, uh, certainly if she wasn't able to bear children to him. And so this uncleanness branched out until a husband could divorce his wife for virtually any reason. And the Jews, the religious Jews, were divided into two camps. So Jesus is massively popular at this time in his ministry so they pose the question to him so that he'll be forced to take side and lose half of his following no matter what he answers here. It's very, very clever uh, trap that they're trying uh, to set. Uh, they would probably, uh, you know, get me or uh, anybody else on it, but, you know, trying to trap the Son of God is a little rough, and they're going to find that out. 
So is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered, and he said to them, have you not read? <laughs> these, are, these are the brainiacs of Judaism. These were the experts in the law of Moses. And so when Jesus starts to ask them a question by saying, oh, have you never read? And then he quotes from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, this is kind of a massive insult. I don't think he's trying to be insulting to them. This is his answer. But it would have been humiliating for them now that they try to trap him in a public setting, and now he's going to address him in that same public setting. Have you never read uh, that he, that is God the Father, made them at the beginning, and uh, who made them at the beginning, made them male and female. And he quotes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, man, uh, 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 mankind created male and female. Boy, that's just, I'm not going to get off on a tangent on this thing, but what's so hard to understand about that? I mean, if you don't know that there's a difference in general between men and women that is way beyond physiological, uh, it really, we've been made that way. And uh, this fight to try and unisex the whole thing, it's an insult to men and women. It is to fight against what we are created to be. We are complementary. Eve came out of a Adam's side uh, she is woman out of man. And both of them, uh, together, they represent uh, God and his beauty and so forth. And, and uh, so this whole idea that you've got to pit the sexes against one another and one has to be above the other or this or that, and, and not just accept that there are males, there are females, it's terrific and just enjoy it, you know, and go on about your business. What a nutty world we live in. I don't need an amen on it because, uh, okay. So he goes into Genesis chapter 1. I'm feeling much better having gotten that off my, my chest. But really, it is, it's a fight that is, it, it's, it's a folly. It's only because people have too much time on their hands and too much money, and they've gotten too—they've gotten too many PhDs, and they're thinking to where now uh, they don't know how to think anymore. God made them male and female, and then and and then God further said. Now he quotes from Genesis chapter two, verse twenty-four. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. Now he comes into addressing. Uh, marriage here is it's first mentioned in the Bible. It's a leaving, a man leaving uh, his father or mother, the influence of that, and then to be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so uh, they're asking about the law of Moses. What is the law of Moses? Says that you could divorce with a, a writing of divorcement. Jesus doesn't answer the question. Jesus goes back to way before the law of Moses, to original creation, to talk about marriage, and he talks about the fact that it is to be made up of one man, one woman. It is to be for life, barring uh, biblical grounds for divorce or death, and uh, to tear it apart is going to be like tearing a body uh, apart. And so, it is the two become one flesh. So they come to Jesus, and, and this is fascinating, at least for me. You're the jury on this. But uh, here they come. They want to talk about divorce, and Jesus turns the subject to marriage. He wants to talk about marriage. It's like uh, somebody comes in, a couple comes in for marriage counseling. And every so often, they will come in, they're so fed up with one another at this particular point, and all they want to talk about is divorce, and how can we do this? And uh, whenever I'm counseling someone like that, I tell them, I never talk about divorce until we first talk about reconciliation. We're not going to begin here like where the religious leaders are starting. Let's go back to another place and try and work our way 
uh, from that. And that's what Jesus does. He goes to the higher ground. He goes to the original tent, intent of God for marriage and that it would be this union between uh, a husband and a wife and that it would be a lifelong union except for uh, death or except for uh, biblical grounds for a divorce. And then Jesus gives his commentary on uh, those two verses in uh, Genesis 1 and 2, verse 6. He said, so then, they are no longer two but one flesh, and therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, you hear that all the time, don't you, when you, when you go to uh, see a wedding. What God has joined together, let no man uh, tear asunder. And it comes from this statement here of Jesus. And so Jesus looks and says, marriage, a, man, a husband and a wife united together, they become one flesh, not just physically, but one flesh in the children that they produce. 22, 23 chromosomes from each the husband and the wife and the child. There it is, one flesh before your eyes. And therefore, what God has joined together... Uh, let not man uh, uh, separate. And so he comes in and he says, you're asking me about the law of Moses here on this. I'm going to go all the way back here. And what God has joined together in marriage, let not man separate. And, and so that this isn't something where a bunch of rabbis get together and find out uh, why people can uh, separate or divorce Two people get married in this way. God has joined them together. Let them remain married. Let not anything that a man does to separate it. And then they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? Now, they think, uh, they think they've got Jesus at this particular point because Jesus has, has now gone back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 and it sounds like he is putting himself uh, contrary to the law of Moses. And remember that the Jewish religious leaders, they considered the whole Old Testament law and prophets to be the Word of God. But if they considered anything to be supremely the Word of God, then it was the law of Moses. So if Jesus says anything against the law of Moses, then it must be he is against God and he can't be God and then how can he make a claim to be the Son of God and so forth? They know what they're trying to do here. So why then, if this is true, if we go and we camp where you are, then why in the world did God the Father allow Moses then to give a command for a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Why did he allow divorce in the law of Moses? And then Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted divorce. Uh, you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And so he said, that was allowed in the law of Moses because of the hardness of heart. Always a marriage, um, except when it ends in death or it ends in because of sexual immorality, which is a, a, a biblical grounds for divorce, all other divorces occur as a result of the hardness of heart of at least one and sometimes both of the partners here. And so he said, it was allowed because of the hardness of your heart. And again, as I said, it was given in the law of Moses as a protection to the wife so that she just couldn't be thrown off and not supported or cared for, etc. It, uh, it, was, it was an effort, uh, even though there were grounds for divorce, to not make it just this something that was, somebody could just freely uh, and casually do. And then Jesus goes on, and he said to him, uh, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And so Jesus comes in and he uh, chimes in related to uh, the point of divorce. What are the grounds? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Jesus ultimately comes all the way around and he answers the question and by declaring his stand on it. 
and says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, that is a, a lawful grounds, and marries another, uh, he commits adultery. And so Jesus uh, takes here uh, this particular stand, and, and he declares, defines uncleanness as they were grappling with it from the law of Moses as being uh, sexual immorality. So he settles the issue. He's the son of God. He knows the intent of the law of Moses. So when Moses wrote about uncleanness, it wasn't about uh, dirty dishes or a dirty home or she changed on me or she couldn't produce any children for me. That was always intended to be uh, sexual immorality. And I think that what happens here is that when Jesus lays that down as the lone uh, uh, grounds for divorce here, and, and interpreting the law of Moses in that way, that he came down a lot stronger than even the disciples expected him to. Now, before we leave this, I just want to say this about uh, marriage. And, of course, the uh, divorce rate in the United States of America is very, very high, astronomically high. And um, the uh, and the divorce rate, even among professing Christians, is very, very high. And, and uh, here, uh, as Jesus comes in and he, and he makes this stand, the, what it ought to produce within us as Christians is that Christians in the world today, us, we ought to have the highest view of marriage of any people in the whole world because of Jesus' high view of marriage. There should not be casual divorce or for any reason, etc. It should be for the reason of remarriage with death or because of sexual immorality, but not all of this other stuff that's going on in the culture. And so, one of the things that it does, and it's almost, it almost feels cruel to people, and I'm not going to get into the specifics of every situation because you can't get into it, but here's what's happening in the culture that we're in related to marriage and the undermining of marriage with very fast and easy divorces and so forth is it's undermining the institution of marriage. Marriage is an institution of God. It is the foundation of the family unit. And when you destroy marriage and you make it something that you just start and stop or begin and tear apart on a whim on the basis of this thing or that thing, the way that they were doing under the liberal interpretation of this in Jesus' day with those rabbis, then you are destroying the family unit. And you, what happens when, when Jesus talks about the fact what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. The idea is that when people marry, there is a union that occurs there that is very intimate. It is intimate physically. It is intimate emotionally. It is uh, intimate uh, mentally and intellectually, intimate even spiritually. And when it talks about uh, two, two people being married and being uh, joined together, the idea, I don't know how many of you have ever done woodworking, but if you, when I used to do woodworking, they had a product called Weldwood. And you would put two pieces of wood together, and you could try then to divide that wood that had been united by weld wood, and you, could, you couldn't do it. You would have to destroy both pieces of wood in order to break it apart. That weld was so strong. And what happens in divorce is the tear, but now we're not talking about wood. We're talking about human beings. We're talking about emotions. We're talking about mental health. We're talking about spiritual health. We're talking about physical things. The wound is so terrible. It's so awful what happens in a person's life. I've talked to so many people through the years, and they say, and it's your testimony too if you've been through it, where they say, this is worse than death. And God knows that. He knows what marriage produces, the beauty of it, the interconnectedness of it, the sacredness of it. And that to just, for someone, because of the hardness of their heart, to tear it apart, the damage that is done to the hu two human beings, the husband and the wife, uh, what it takes to get over that, if a person can ever get over that. But then you move it into the children. 
and what happens to the children in that divorce, the tear that occurs uh, within their lives, the track that it puts them on. I remember reading an article years ago, I think it was in the Atlantic uh, Monthly or whatever, the Atlantic something, that uh, periodical, but it talked about uh, the family unit, talked about divorce and so forth, and it's something like, you know, 97% of the children in divorced homes or something, 86 or some percent or something like that, in the United States of America, instantly the day after the divorce, those children go into poverty, poverty level. That's the truth about the United States of America. It does a horrible thing to the children. And what is important for us to understand, and it's lost in the culture because the culture is so selfish, and we are so selfish by nature. I'm the most important thing in the world, the most important thing in my life. My happiness is the most important thing. This wasn't always true of every generation of Americans. A lot of people held the marriage together for the sake of the kids. They might not have been that happy, but it was a lesser unhappiness than what tearing the family apart would have brought upon uh, all of them. And you say this kind of stuff today, and it's like you come from another planet because divorce is quick, it's easy, all I want is what I'm happy with, and I'll just keep moving through all these guys or all these gals until I find what makes me happy. The problem is, is that most relationships, if, if you throw off marriage every time it becomes difficult, then no marriage is going to last. And one of the great things that happens when God, as Jesus does here, He puts a perimeter, a very hard wall related to this thing. Except for sexual immorality, you stay in there, talking to Christians, and work these things out because God has a way of taking these hard things in our life and making us into the person that we would never otherwise become if we weren't forced to work through them rather than to just run and escape the problem, to then have it reoccur later on in my life. And so the importance of it, we just run from everything hard and And uh, that's the tendency, but it's not the best thing to happen. So Jesus puts these perimeters on, and I don't know, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many people in this room or in this church or any particular church where you look and say, yeah, hey, at one point in time in our marriage, I couldn't stand him, or you, the guy could say, I couldn't stand her. The only reason that we stayed at it was because of what the Bible said, not because of what the culture said, or even other Christians were telling us to do, just to get out of it because your happiness is the most important thing, and forget about him, and forget about her, forget about the kids, and so forth. We worked through it, and then to look back and say, this is the, one of the most This relationship is what I treasure the most in all of life. I remember reading a statistic. I'm going on and on here, but it's a passion for me, and it needs to be said related to the culture. I remember reading um, uh, an article concerning uh, the baby boomers who are now retiring kind of in mass, you know, because of of their age group. And... uh, And the article was talking about, and it was like a lamentation over the fact that, yeah, they kind of grew up in the 60s. It was the free sex. It was just marry, divorce, marry, divorce, just roll through relationships however you want to do. But they were saying the fact that this generation is uh, heading into old age completely lonely. They have thrown off all of the relationships earlier in life that are needed for later in life to bring stability, to bring meaning, to bring significance. They threw all of them away under the weight of selfishness and the new morality and the new sexual liberty and all of these kind of things. Now they come to an age in life where it's too late now to develop relationships with that kind of depth. And now they face old age 
with surface relationships rather than the ones that God would intend each of us to have. So I know there's two sides in, um, in divorce and remarriage and so forth. I know there's a lot of stories and a lot of different things. I've heard a lot of them through the years. So I'm not going to personalize it towards anybody's situation, but just to say, and by the way, I'm not backtracking from anything I've already said, but the point to stop and look at it The indoctrination of the culture is awful, and it is conforming the church and Christians in a way that we're not giving it credit for. And the Lord says, listen, when you marry, except for sexual immorality, you work through those problems. One of the things that it would do if this was the standard and it was the known standard is it would make people a lot more discerning and careful about who they married to begin with. And it wouldn't be like, wow, I met her yesterday. We're heading to Vegas to get married. Do you know what you're doing there? You know, this is a lifetime thing. And to really stop, hear the voice of the Lord, know this is the person that I'm supposed to marry, and so forth, and and, uh, that this is the commitment that is being made. But again, on the upside of all of this, God has a way when he's given a chance to work within a marriage It isn't easy. Nobody is saying that it's easy, but it forces us to do the hard thing, and it forces a relationship to grow into a depth that it wouldn't otherwise have. And even if the other person won't grow, it forces me to grow in my relationship with the Lord in a way that maybe another circumstance wouldn't. Sometimes it's a hard marriage. Sometimes it's a one-sided marriage that drives me to a depth of relationship with God that I wouldn't otherwise have. And a person says, well, I don't want to learn it in marriage. All right. So maybe you'll get cancer, and you'll learn it there. Or maybe you'll learn it through bankruptcy, or you'll learn it, or learn it, or learn it, or learn it. There's a lot of different ways that the lessons can be learned. But this forces us to honor marriage in the way that Jesus wants us to, and when he's engaged in that marriage, he's going to make us into what we wouldn't otherwise become if we just could jump out of it any time that we wanted to. That's to be our level of commitment toward marriage. And then you add on top of all of this what Paul brings out later on in his epistles, that our marriages as Christians represent the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church, which is like the, most, the greatest honor, the greatest Um, the highest thing about a Christian marriage is that we get to represent how I handle and how I treat Karen in this marriage is I am to represent Jesus' love for the church in my treatment of her. As she submits to me, she is uh, representing the privilege of the body of Christ and the church being able to submit to the headship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we may never get to preach to somebody or whatever, but they get to see that imagery in our marriage, and it's a powerful uh, imagery. I close with this on this subject, and then for our uh, handling of things tonight, the, uh, you know, the, the, the United States of America here. And I'm just really, you know, things are just changing so fast that I know on every sermon I'm talking about our culture, I'm talking about our nation, but it's changing so fast it just has to be that way. It is fascinating. No country, I don't care how wealthy a country is, no country has enough wealth to withstand the financial consequences of the breakdown of marriage and the breakdown of the family unit. The amount of money that it costs the government, state government, and federal government to try and do what a father and a mother as the head of a home are intended to do No amount of money can be thrown at that to replace that. You cannot replace the family unit. So what's our national debt right now? 19 uh, trillion and counting, you know, like going off. Someday, if the Lord tarries, we will run out of money. And someday the politicians won't be able to deficit spend to play games. And you know where this is all going to go back to? when there isn't a handout from the government because they're broke and they can't afford 
to pay the, for the consequences of their unbiblical decisions, it will swing back to marriage. And it will swing back when we realize that nobody's going to bail us out. We need to work on this marriage, and we need to keep this family intact. We are, who, we are all we've got in God, in the body of Christ, and it will become a priority again, and it will become the way to live, if for no other reason, and it's not the highest reason, uh, than for financial reasons, security reasons. There is no substitution for marriage and the family unit. Now, when they hear all of this, uh, the disciples then said to Jesus, I promise to quit. I, will, I just want to finish this little section right here, or I'm starting in the middle of who knows where next week. His disciples then said to him, if such is the case of a, of a man with his wife, then it's better not to marry. They didn't expect Jesus to draw the line where he did. And so they're like wowed by it. And their question is, is wow, if you've got a, a man's got to stay married to a wife except for a reason of sexual immorality for divorce, and marrying a woman then runs the risk of entering into uh, a difficult marriage, a challenging marriage, then maybe it's best not to marry. Well, you know, that's something to think about. <laughs> and then he said to them, he said, all cannot accept this saying but only those uh, to whom it has been given. And he said, for there are eunuchs, and that is those who are incapable of, of really marrying and, and producing a family. There are eunuchs who are born thus from uh, their mother's womb. And so there are some people who can never marry, can never have a family because of kind of a birth defect in terms of their reproductive organs. They are eunuchs from their mother's womb. And then there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by uh, men. And in those days, if you were uh, uh, you had a high position with a king in those days, and you had access to his harem, typically that male servant would be, uh, he would be made a eunuch so that he could not fool around and mess with the lineage and the dynasty of the king. Sometimes a king would come to a, a highly respected uh, friend or colleague and say, listen, I've got a proposition for you. I want to make you my, uh, you know, secretary of state, my right-hand person in my kingdom. And the per you might be thinking, great, I'd love to do that. And then he'd say, there's one catch. You'll be around my wives. Well, boy, I don't know. Uh, you know, <laughs> I kind of like digging ditches and uh, having everything else, you know. So, but, but that would be the case. Sometimes it wasn't just mandatory. You could, in the ancient world, they would uh, castrate. If it was a slave, they could castrate you like that. It was just uh, the way that it was. It wasn't something of God's Word, but that's, that's the way that it was. Sometimes it was more voluntary, where someone would look and say, yes, I want that power, and it's worth not having a marriage or family to be a part of. And so there are some eunuchs or made eunuchs by men, and then there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And uh, he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. And this talks about people who remain single, both male and female, who remain single, they don't marry, in order that they might uh, be able to, without distraction, focus upon God's call upon their life. It's a voluntary uh, eunuch, and when it's talking about eunuch, it's talking about not marrying, not having a family. And there's a lot of people in the world who choose not to marry Christians, they choose not to marry, and they choose not to have a family be so that they can focus their full attention upon what God has called them to do. Paul was in that category. And he talked to the singles when he wrote to the church at Corinth and said, listen, I wish you'd all stay single, single just like me. It's a lot easier in doing God's work. You don't have to think about her and her needs and her cares and all of these kind of things. But then Paul said, hey, listen, it's not for everyone. It's a gift. And if you don't have a gift of celibacy, you don't have this desire, then you ought to marry. Because if you don't have the gift, then you're intended to marry and intended to have a family and so forth. But there are people who 
are in that category, and they live their whole life without the blessing of marriage, without the blessing of family, in order to focus completely upon uh, for the sake of uh, the, uh, the kingdom of heaven. And he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. We'll pick up uh, in verse 13. I'm slowing down. I apologize uh, related to that. We'll try and pick things up a little bit uh, next time. But so much of it is just right where we live. It's hard not to talk with a little bit of depth on some of these issues. Let's stand together and we'll pray tonight. Jesus, we thank you for your word tonight, and wow, what, what subjects, forgiveness and um, marriage, the institution of marriage, and how wild everything around us has become and, and how different your standard on both of these fronts is from our flesh uh, from even the counsel, Lord, of other Christians in our lives and certainly from the world. And we thank you, Lord, for this standard. We thank you for your wisdom behind uh, what it is that you command us to do here. And we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be able to learn it um, the easy way rather than the hard way, just to take your word for it. I thank you for all of these uh, young men and young women that are in this room tonight and they're hearing about marriage this evening. And I pray that the truth of all of this would sink in very deeply into their hearts for them to view that commitment with the sobriety, Jesus, that you do, to think about how major that decision is and how important it is to hear your voice and then to make the commitment that you demand of us in that marriage and, Lord, I pray and we pray for one another tonight. We know that a difficult marriage is no fun to be in, very, very hard. And we're not compassionless, and neither are you. And we pray for men and women that are in just such a marriage tonight. And we ask, Lord, that tonight what's being spoken about would not be like a bludgeon to them or to make them feel guilty, but to be able to see marriage and the importance of staying in something for the sake of someone and something greater than themselves, and that is you, Lord, and your kingdom and others who are affected, that that's something that has to be thought about and is important to be thought about. And we pray that you would brood upon them as they leave this place tonight and speak to them your heart into the specifics of their situation that is so clear to you but not clear to us. Thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for how it keeps us from being fashioned by a self-destructive world that is running headlong into disaster all around us, Lord. And we thank you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.